Let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, tonight we're coming to look at the temple, which on the surface seems so irrelevant for us, a building that was built thousands of years ago and destroyed and that doesn't exist today. But yet, Lord, we do believe that all of your word is breathed out by you and is useful for us. And so we ask tonight that as we come to consider the temple that was built by Solomon, that you would teach us through it and that it would be have good for us to heard about it. But Lord, speak this tonight, we pray, through this part of the Bible, as we look at the temple now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, question. I wonder can anyone get it? I'm sure somebody can. What is the tallest building in the world today? What? Huh? What have we got? Any guesses? Oh, hi. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I feel like this is good. Okay. Let, let, give, me a, give me a hand if you've got a guess. Oh, oh hang on. Where'd he's got it right? Where is it? It is. It's the Burj Khalifa. Have you heard of the Burj Khalifa? No? Okay, so the Burj Khalifa, it's in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Does anyone hazard a guess how tall the Burj Khalifa is? A kilometer. Clive has gone big. No, you're, you've, kind of, you've kind of blown my bubble. It's not a kilometer. It's less. It's less, but it's almost a kilometer. It's 829.8 meters, which in old money is 2,722 feet. It's massive. It, it just towers above everything else in sight, obviously, as the tallest building in the world. And what's quite interesting about the, the Burj Khalifa is that it's a very, very functional building. It was built uh, to, to, to obviously beat the record for the world's tallest building, but it was also built for a purpose. It was built to, to populate this area of Dubai. And so it's used for housing. You can buy an apartment in the Burj Khalifa. In fact, I checked it out. You, you can buy one online. There's some available. You, you may need to be a millionaire, but you can get one if you fancy it. It's got housing. It's got restaurants. It actually homes the, the, the highest nightclub in the world. So I know plenty of you are clubbers here, you know, and uh, if you want to go to the highest nightclub in the world, you can head over to Dubai. It's got shops, it's got swimming pools, it's got gyms. It, it, it's a, just a, a fantastic building that is very, 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 very functional. And, and it's interesting because if you were to go to, to ancient Jerusalem, what Solomon was doing was, in a sense, he was building the Burj Khalifa. And he wasn't trying to be the, the biggest building of, in the world, but it was the, the biggest building in Jerusalem. It was the most beautiful building in Jerusalem. It was the most, or in fact, it wasn't the biggest building in Jerusalem. That, that's wrong. It was at the highest point in Jerusalem, but it wasn't the biggest. Uh, Solomon's uh, home actually seems to have been bigger in terms of square feet. But anyway, it's this big building, uh, and it was there to, to impress everybody. Filled with gold. It was beautiful. It was glistening. All the best of materials were used in it. But it was a very, very functional building, just like the Burj Khalifa. It was a functional building. And there were a number of things that the, the, the temple was there to functionally do. So it was there to, to be a place for sacrifices to be made. And, and if you read through the, the, the passage, you'll have seen that a number of times Solomon offers sacrifices in the temple. Right at, right at its opening, he's offering sacrifices there. And there's different types of sacrifices. If you were here when we went through the book of Leviticus, you'll, you'll know what those are all about. And if you can't remember, check out the podcast. But the most significant sacrifice, it was the, the Day of Atonement, whenever a sacrifice was made for the sins of the people. 
And now that the tabernacle was being replaced with the temple, that's where that happened. So people went there and they offered their sacrifices to the Lord. And on the day of atonement, sacrifice was made for sin. So it was a functional place where sacrifices were made. It was also a place where, where prayer and praise was given. It's where people went to pray. It's where people went to praise God. And again, you, you see a little bit of that in chapter 8, verse 30. You'll see that it's mentioned there where he says, hear the prayer, hear the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray towards this place. So he's saying, listen, whenever the people are in Jerusalem and they, they pray facing the temple, well, then will you hear them, Lord? But the people would also go to the temple and they go into the courts of the temple and they pray there and they praise God. In Isaiah 56, we read this, my house, that's the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all the people. And then if you remember Jesus clearing the temple, do you remember that in the New Testament? And he says, my house is to be called a place of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. So it's a place where the people were to gather to, to pray and, and to worship with song, and they would have sang the Psalms. A wonderful place for prayer and for praise. It was also a place where people went to remember the law of God, to remember his teachings, to to be fed with his word, to hear his commands. It's really interesting. If you look at chapter 8, uh, verse 9, th they brought the Ark of the, the Covenant in, this, this golden box that had been with them um, right from, from, from ancient times. But if you look at verse 9, it says, there was nothing in the Ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it in Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, and the only thing in it is the law of God, the commands of God. It was to be a place where, where the law of God was to be central. Right at the heart of the temple, it was a place to remember God's law and to recommit to living His way. And then it was also a place for the gathering of God's people. And again, you, you can see that in 865. So Solomon observed the festival at that time, and all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebo, Hamath, to the Wadi, and they celebrated it before the Lord God for seven days and for seven more, 14 in all. What would happen is that, that the people for the celebrations that the Lord had commanded throughout the year, people from everywhere, Jews from all over the place, all of God's people would come to the temple, and they'd come there to celebrate the festivals that the Lord had given them, and, and it would be a place where people would catch up. You might not have seen, you know, like your family, some, some members of your family, you don't see them unless there's a wedding or a funeral. Well, that was the same within God's family spread throughout the world. But they'd come to the temple and they'd gather together and they'd encourage one another and they'd meet together and they'd see each other. It was a functional building. It was a place where, where stuff happened. It existed to, to, to be functional, a functional place for the worship of God. But it's really interesting because the Burj Khalifa, although it's a functional building, it was also built to do something else. It was built to make a statement. It's really interesting if you go to the website of the, the Burj Khalifa, it says this, more than just the world's tallest building, Burj Khalifa is an unprecedented example of international cooperation 
symbolic beacon of progress, an emblem for the new dynamic and prosperous Middle East. It is also tangible proof of Dubai's growing role in the changing world. In fewer than 30 years, this city has transformed itself from a regional center to a global one. This success was not based on oil reserves, but on reserves of human talent, ingenuity, and initiative. Burj Khalifa embodies that vision. See what it's saying? It's in this building, it's for the glory of Dubai. It's so that people know we exist. It puts us on the map, and it says something wonderful about our city. It's built for, 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 for something more than just the function. And what's really interesting is that whenever it comes to the temple, it was built for more than just function. It was built for more than just doing stuff in. It was built to make a statement. The first thing we see is that the, 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 the temple was built to proclaim God's name and God's fame. I don't know if you picked it up, but it's quite interesting. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 5, Solomon, when he writes to Hiram, he says, I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. Do you see that? I intend to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. Uh, in the ancient world, people built temples for, for their gods, and they actually built the temple for their God to live in. You know, so if people worshipped, I don't know, some sort of statue, and they, they said that was their God, and they believed that their God embodied that statue, they would build a house, and they'd put the statue in the temple. And what they would say is, we have built a temple for our God. Our God is actually in there. Our, our God lives in this house. But interestingly, Solomon doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I'm building a house for God to live in. And even later on in his prayer, he, he says that God dwells in heaven, but he's building a temple for the name of the Lord. What's that all about? If you've ever been to New York, lots of brilliant big buildings, and there's a building called Trump Tower. Trump Tower. Now, whenever you look at Trump Tower, you know, you see the nice glass, you, you see the building. But what you cannot help happen whenever you look at Trump Tower is to think of Donald Trump. His name is on the building. The building is built for his name. It is Trump Tower. And whenever you look to that building, you cannot help but think of Mr. Donald Trump. Burj Khalifa, I'm sure your Arabic is wonderful. So can anyone tell me what Burj Khalifa means? Oh, you're all being too modest. I know it's brilliant. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, you know, even though you know. So Burj in Arabic means tar. Khalifa is the name of the king of the United Arab Emirates. So if you speak Arabic and you look at the Burj Khalifa, the president, he doesn't live in it, but his name is on the building. And everyone who speaks Arabic, when they look at the Burj Khalifa, they're, they're thinking of the king. And the building, in a sense, is there to, to highlight his name, to, to put his name in lights. It's, it's there for his fame. It's there to, to remind people of who he is and of his name and of his fame. 
And, and that's what the temple was there to do. It wasn't just functional. It was there to, to highlight the name of God, to, to make him famous in Jerusalem, so that every day when the people were walking the streets and they look up to the highest point and saw the temple, it was that they'd remember their God. Whenever foreigners came, you know, the tourists came to Jerusalem from these foreign nations, and you're kind of laughing, but th there would have been foreigners coming for trade and things like that. And whenever they would came and they said, wow, look, look at that building. What's that about? And they said, well, that is the temple of our God. It's kind of ironic. This temple is often called Solomon's temple. If you're reading any kind of Bible literature, because there were three temples, it, it's always called Solomon's temple. And it's just so ironic because it was built to make God's name famous. It was built for his glory and his fame in Jerusalem and beyond. So it was built for the name of the Lord. But God did something that, that I'm not sure Solomon could have expected, or maybe he did, I'm, I'm not sure. And what did God do? Even though this, this, this temple was built for his name, and even though he, he dwells in his fullness in heaven, what God did was he made his very special presence in the temple too. He took a little glimmer of his presence in heaven and he, he, he put it in the temple itself. The temple was not built for God. He lived in heaven, but, but he made his presence in a special way known in the temple. And again, you can see that in our passage. If you look at verses 10 and 11, so they'd, they'd done all this stuff. They'd consecrated the temple. They'd brought the ark of the Lord in. And I don't know if they were expecting this, but verse 10 tells us, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. A glimpse of his glory filled the temple. Something of his special presence filled this place. How incredible is that? And then again, you see it in verse 27. He says, but will not get, but, but, sorry, but then he makes the point that, 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 that the temple can't contain God, that it's not his full presence, that he's not living in the presence, but just this little bit of his presence is there. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, Solomon says. So do you get it? God's full glorious presence, it's in heaven, and it's going to be incredible when we experience it in its fullness. But here, whenever Solomon builds the temple, God lets his presence rest there. He lets something of his presence fill that place. His presence was there. It wasn't just functional. It was something more than that. It was a place where heaven and earth met. And it was a building that was there to declare the fame of the Lord. But it also did something else. It pointed to the long-term mission of God. It actually pointed to, to what God's plan is and was for, for the whole of creation, for the whole world. What is God's plan? What is his mission? What does he want for the whole world? He wants his fame and his name to be known everywhere. And he wants his presence to be experienced everywhere. He wants people to experience his presence, and he wants people to know his name and his fame. 
And again, you, you can see little bits of that in the passage. You can see him talking about the foreigners coming. When they come, that they would see, that they would see the temple and know him. And then it talks at the end about how he wants the, the glory of the Lord to fill the whole earth in his prayer. Folks, that, that's what God wants. He wants his name and his fame to be over the world. And he wants his special presence to be everywhere. I don't know if you've recognized this, but, but God really wants people to dwell in his presence. God really wants people to, to know him and enjoy him. You go to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Adam and Eve and they're in the garden and they're in God's presence. That's what we were made for, to be in his presence, to enjoy the full presence of God. And then it comes to the tabernacle being built in the wilderness. And again, what does God do? He, he puts his presence in that place in the midst of his people. If you remember from, from when we did Exodus, do you remember how the, the whole community was laid out? The tabernacle was in the middle and all of the tribes were around it, dwelling in the midst in the presence of his people. And now here in the temple again, in the, in the, the center of Jerusalem, God makes his presence known. And what God wants for people is that they will dwell in his presence forever in eternity. And the way that they can do that is through trusting in Christ. Trusting in Christ. Folks, if you're here tonight, and I, I know most of you are, or maybe all of you are trusting in Christ, but if you're not, will you put your faith in him? Will you be filled with his spirit? Will you know that your future is secure and you'll be able to dwell in that presence forever? That's what the Lord wants for the world. It's what he wants for people. Okay, Marty, a lot of temple stuff there. Uh, it's not the most exciting sermon you've ever preached. A lot of information, you know, good to know. But Marty, what, what, what on earth has got to do with us? What has the temple got to do with us? What's it got to do with us? It's really interesting. In the New Testament, uh, the, the temple is there whenever Jesus is walking. It's not this temple. It's another temple that's been rebuilt. But Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed. He says that the temple is going to be destroyed for good. And, and it is 70 AD. The Romans come and they wreck the temple and it's never rebuilt again. But there is a new temple according to the Gospels, according to the New Testament. And the temple is not a physical building. The temple is a building made up of people. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter writes this in chapter 2. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So he says, as you come to Jesus, and he has this temple language. He's, he's like the cornerstone of the temple. As you come to Jesus... You, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, let me just try to, to give you the picture of what he's saying. He's saying, folks, Jesus is like the cornerstone of the temple. He's the foundation stone. And as you come to him and put your faith in him, it's like you're a little stone that's being added. And as you join together as God's people, as you get together like we're doing tonight, 
you, in a sense, become the new temple. What does the New Testament say? It says that, that the church, the people of God gathered, they are, in effect, the new temple. So what does that mean for us? It means that all of those things that apply to, to the Old Testament temple actually apply to us as the church. What does that mean? It means that whenever we come to church, we're there to rem not to make sacrifices, but to remember a sacrifice. When we gather in church, one of the things that we should be doing every week as we come is remembering the sacrifice of Christ for us. We should be remembering the gospel. And how do we do that? We do it through hearing the Word of God preached and the gospel preached every week, and we do it also by taking the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But when you come to church, we should be expecting to be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for our salvation. My old boss, Gary Miller, when he was in Malahide, he, he started to get a, a lot of pushback on his sermons from members of the congregation. And it wasn't because they were bad. He, he's an outstanding preacher. He's a, he's a fantastic preacher. He's a biblical preacher. But he started to get pushback from, from some members of the congregation who didn't really like the Bible being taught. And one of the things that a man said to him was this. They said, all your sermons are the same. And Gary says that in a moment of clarity, he said, thank you very much. And the man looked kind of miffed. And what was Gary's point? He was that actually his sermons should be the same every single week in one particular way. They should point to Jesus Christ crucified. They should point to our sin and that we need a Savior. They should point to his all-sufficiency. They should all point to Jesus. Thank you, Gary said. And folks, whenever we come to church every week and you hear of Jesus every week and you hear of the gospel, hopefully most weeks I'm trying my best to be every week. But that's what we're here to do to remember week after week after week that Christ has died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that we're forgiven because of Him. So we come not to make sacrifices, but, but to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And we come to pray. And we come to praise. Do you know, I, I don't know if you like singing. I know some of my friends, and they go to churches, and, and they say, like, we, we hate singing. We hate it. But you know what? Even if we hate singing, the reason we're here is to praise. And so I want to encourage you, even if you hate singing, just give it your all because it's not about your voice. It's not really about how much you like it. It's about what's going on in your heart when you sing. And singing with, with wholeheartedness to the Lord. We're here to praise Him. We're also here to remember His law. We're here to, to remember his teaching. We're here to remember how he calls us to live as his people. We center our worship, don't we, around the Bible. We center it around the scriptures. And why do we do that? It's because that's what we're meant to do when we gather as his people. Some weeks, we're going to hear things that deeply, deeply challenge us. Some weeks, we're going to think, hear things that, that just kind of make us, I don't know, see our sin in a whole new light. And hopefully see our Savior in a whole new night as well. Sometimes we're going to come and we're going to hear new things. And, 
and be encouraged to live His way. Sometimes we're going to come and hear new things, and I know that's good knowledge. Some weeks we're going to come, and it's not going to be the most exciting thing in the world, but we gather around the Word of God because that's what we're here to do, to remember His law, to remember His ways, to remember how He's calling us to live. And another reason we come as the church, it's like the people who came to the festivals every year. We're here to be with each other. We're here to be with each other. I don't know if you've realized, but in the New Testament, there's an awful lot of one another's, one another. And it's written to churches, and it's saying, whenever you, whenever you gather together, encourage one another, stir one another up, pray for one another, help one another. The Christian life, it's not meant to be done alone. And the church is a place where we're meant to get to know each other and, and relate to each other and care for each other and encourage one another. You know, I, I used to think that um, you go to church to, to hear the minister, you know, to hear the sermon. And of course you do. You know, we, we come to church because we want to hear what God says. But what I used to think is that in church, I guess that was the most important, I guess, conversation was the conversation the minister would have with you from the Bible. But you know what I've come to realize? Is that the most, conversation, the most important conversations in church are not actually the ones from the front, from a pulpit. They're the ones that happen in the pews. Have you found that? How many times has it been that the most encouraging thing that's been said to you or the most helpful thing that's been said to you or, or the thing that's really helped you the most has not been from the front through the sermon. It's been from your mate sitting down by your side. As we gather as the church, we, we gather together for fellowship to encourage one another. And what I really want to encourage you to do is to keep doing that. You're good at it, but don't stop. Encourage one another to live for Christ. In 2007, um, the Washington Post did this very good experiment. And uh, if, you're on, if you want to check it out, you can watch it on YouTube. Uh, there was a, a, a concert pianist called Joshua Bell. And he was playing in the, in the main kind of arena. Um, I think it was, was it in Boston? No, it was in Washington, obviously, Washington Post. It was in Washington. He was playing in the main arena. And as an experiment, what they did was they, they, they put him in a subway station during the day. So he had sort of a hat on, and he was dressed very casually, and he was there with his, um, his violin, which was worth about uh, $3.5 million, the Stradivarius violin. And uh, that night, he sold out the, the opera house. People were paying over $100 to come and hear him. And he just stood in the, the metro station in the underground, and he, he played the most beautiful, the most beautiful violin music. And it's fascinating because as you watch, people just walk past, they don't even kind of recognize him. It's like they're immune to his music. And uh, I don't know how much money he got from, uh, from people tossing change in, but I'm pretty sure it didn't hit the $100 that people were coming to pay to see him that night. But it was interesting, wasn't it? Because it, it, his presence was there. His presence was in that place. And yet people, well, I guess they, they didn't seem to recognize it. And folks, what we have to recognize tonight is that as we gather as God's people, His presence is here. 
know, it's interesting, isn't it? You, you look around tonight, and this doesn't look very impressive, does it, in the world's eye? You look at the Irish Men's Convention yesterday, 1,800 people gathered together. That looked quite impressive, you know? You look at Old Trafford on a Saturday afternoon, 60,000 people gathered together. That looks impressive. That looks significant, doesn't it? The Irish Men's Convention looks at significant. Even Windsor Park with 18,000 on the night that Northern Ireland are playing looks significant. Ravenhill on the night Ulster are playing looks significant. All of these people, and it looks so significant. We look around tonight. It doesn't look very significant. But it is. Because when we gather here, with just the few of us that there are, and we meet to praise God and to pray and to hear His Word. He's here in a special way. His presence is here. I wonder, do you recognize that? I wonder if you thought about that. I wonder if you do think about that, would it, would it change, I guess, your expectations when you come? I don't know what you expect when you come to church. Whenever I was a child or a teenager and I ever went, I didn't expect very much. But now I expect more because I believe the Lord is here. He's here when we gather. And what is our job? It's like we were saying earlier on in our prayers. Our job is to make the name of Jesus known. Just like the temple was there to make the, the fame of the name of God known, our job is is to make the fame of Jesus Christ known. There's a very, very clever man called G.K. Beale, and he writes this very thick book on the temple, and he traces it from the Garden of Eden right through to Revelation, and he writes many things that I cannot understand. But there was one thing he wrote that was very, very clear and, and bang on the money and resonated with me, and he wrote this. The mark of the true church is an expanding witness to the presence of God, first to our families, then to others in the church, then to our neighborhood, then to our city, then to our country, and ultimately the whole earth. May God give us grace to go out into the world as His extending temple and spread God's presence by reflecting it until it finally fills the entire earth. Our job as the church gathered is to be in His presence. And our job as the church scattered throughout our work and our family is to take His presence with us because we've been filled with the Holy Spirit and to take it out with us and to tell of Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll sing our closing hymn. Lord, we thank you for the temple. But Lord, we thank you for this new temple, your church. Lord, thank you that when we gather together, you're with us and here. And Lord, we thank you for this frightening but magnificent task you've given us to take your presence into the world and to make Jesus known. Father, as we gather Sunday by Sunday, sometimes we come just out of duty. Sometimes we come not expecting very much. 
Sometimes you come tired and, and not really wanting to be here, but just turning up anyway. But Father, for each of us when we come, would we come expectant, expectant to meet with you, expectant to hear from you, expectant to be transformed by you. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the, the privilege it is to be your people. Thank you for the presence that you give us daily in our lives and the presence we have in the church. And Lord, this week we look forward to the time when we will be fully in your presence on the new earth when heaven comes down. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.